because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field, a show in which we discuss. I sound kind of like Mr. I Miyagi. I don't, I don't know what <laughs> A show in which we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Santa. I'm Mrs. Claus? I don't want to say that. It's in the script. You have to say it. <laughs> Read it verbatim. And today we're discussing a movie about my brother. I should stay in the voice. Um, today we're discussing a movie about my brother, Fred Claus. Was the week before Christmas, and flying north in the sled was a very special visitor. Santa's big brother, Fred. Mr. Claus, welcome to the North Pole. Ah! Allergies. Gun! Take a service stand down. Guys. That was nuts! You don't have ninjas jump me. I gotta make sure nothing happens to me. Something happened to them, maybe I give them something. No, 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 no. Warner Brothers Pictures invites you to come home for the holidays. And we welcome to the show five-time returning guest Emily St. James, purveyor of Christmas delight and joy and also writer of bees. Welcome (laughs) back to the show, Emily. Hello, I'm actually Emily Claus. I'm your sister. Oh my God! So we're we're then you're immortal too. Yeah, I am. I'm immortal. We're yes. all immortal. Yay! This, this podcast is the only one hosted by immortals, which I think oh. is really great. That is that's got to be our like new branding. I think is that we all live forever. <laughs> we're hosted by yeah. Hosted if by we marry you, you will also live forever. So I think you need to. It's like incentive, right? Mm-hmm. We're looking for a leg up. Do we think Rachel Vies? If she marries Fred Claus, will indeed live forever. Well, that Fred's our... like kind of on the outskirts of this whole thing. That's what I, yeah, because that's, Justin had that same okay. question. You thought it was obvious? Right. I did well, not. All right. Okay. Do we want to just, minute zero, we immediately <laughs> go into litigating the rules of sainthood? Because I'm happy to do that. Or, Let's just get it over or, 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 okay. okay. I just okay. want to, I want to actually just start, because, you know, the audience may not know what the movie Fred Claus is. Oh, excuse us. I just, maybe we need to lay some groundwork. And okay. then, then we can get into the metaphysics of sainthood because we will go deep on that. Fabulous. Okay. Is that good with every, okay. So, yes, Emily, the first question is to you. Why did you want to talk about Fred Claus? Uh, I, I actually kind of didn't. I was like, how did this Libby, my wife, we were go, we were out Christmas shopping today and she was like, why are you talking about Fred Claus? Was this your idea? And I was like, it was kind of. And then I went back and reread the suggestions. Several wonderful movies were suggested. Um, Rankin Bass specials were suggested. Somehow in the middle of that, I was like, Fred Claus kind of digs into some weird philosophical themes. <laughs> what, what if I suggested Fred Claus? Yeah. Uh, this is a movie I'm obsessed with. I don't like it. I think it's actively bad, but like I'm just obsessed with its cosmology, mm. with its view of the world, with how it takes a premise that feels pretty like straightforward. Santa has a ne'er-do-well brother. Done. We got it. That's all we need to know. And then just layers all this other stuff on <laughs> yes. it. Uh, it's, it is... 
it is the like it's sort of the platonic ideal of like a kind of bad late 2000s studio comedy mm. but it's also a christmas film so people will watch it every year and just be like yeah fred claus is my elf and i'm like you are a sad sorry excuse for a human being if- i don't even like elf that much i'm just like it's better than fred claus it is yes we, <laughs> yeah. we, we watched i mean this is the vince vaughn elf they it's were just vince like let's do it again no, with we, vince vaughn we went after we finished watching it we were like Let's put on Elf just to see if it's as clunky as this. And it just looks infinitely better. Yeah, they're way smarter with the CGI. (laughs) Elf is so much better. Its vision of the North Pole has some actual like visual interest to it. It's not just like a a random Christmas village come to life. Right, like Um, a mall mall set. Yeah. Uh, Hulu, which I watched this on, queued up the film Jack Frost from 1998, in which Michael Keaton plays uh, a man reincarnated as a snowman by a magical harmonica. If you're wondering what the cows in the field 2024 Christmas special is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it also, HBO Max, I should say, or Max, I should just say, this, or, this episode is sponsored by both Hulu and Max. So I just wanted to <laughs> yeah. get that out there. Uh, we watched it on Max, and uh, Jack Frost also queued up next. And I, I, <laughs> I did not push play, though. I, I'm saving it for 2024, but yeah. I was like, I've never seen Jack Frost. Let's just see how bad this is. I made it 50 minutes in and stopped. There's a there's a magical harmonica. That was all I needed to know. That's so. a pretty amazing. You were playing to stop after five, and you stayed for 50. That's a huge endorsement, I think. <laughs> uh, I, okay, so uh, I think now that we've said the setup of the movie i think we can we can jump into some of the window dressing this movie puts around this central silly central premise um window dressing that i think actually to your to your point emily raises interesting philosophical questions also the <laughs> themes of this movie are kind of fun and so uh what are the rules of sainthood should we just read them verbatim and then we can start please to read them this? verbatim because okay. the way that this enters the film five minutes in is my yeah. favorite thing about fred claus the narrator <laughs> just reads whatever it is you're about he to just read. reads it i'm gonna put it I'll, I'll edit it in the episode but here it is for us now it's a little known rule of sainthood but when you become a saint you freeze in time eternally ageless the rule applies to the family of the saint and spouses as well. Okay, so <laughs> the part that's ambiguous that we, we started off the top Who's of the episode. Spouses? Exactly. Is, <laughs> is the family of the spouse, sorry, excuse me, the family of the saint stop, and then in addition to the family of the saint, the spouse of the saint, or is it the family of the saint and spouses of everyone who is in the unit, right? So So if you... Uh, so that would mean like, um, if, if you're, in, it's like recursive, right? If you're in the thing, then your spouse is in the thing, in the, in the unit. Mm-hmm. And then presumably if you get divorced and you married again, that person would also be in the thing because you just keep adding spouses. Right. So yeah, it's a, so I, I also don't, don't know how children works in this. Nobody has children conveniently, but like, right. cause well, it's, if they're eternally ageless, like it's fam- you have- family. So yeah. But you- if you had a baby, would it always be a baby? Oh, right. <laughs> yes. That's what, that's what I'm Would it wondering. always be like a, a zygote? <laughs> right. That's what it's I'm like wondering. When it's conceived, it just lives inside of you forever. Obviously, Fred Claus marries Rachel Weiss. We don't quite know what happens to her. But like, yeah. if they continue to age, if like he and Rachel Weiss have Wanda as her name in the film, if they have totally way, total waste of a wonderful actress. If they continue to, if they have a child, will both Rachel and the child continue to age past Fred Claus? Yeah. This feels like, 
it does feel like a setup for like uh, a cinematic universe that never was like about the siblings of like Joan of Arc and Francis of Assisi and like all these other like is that yeah like it, it just I think they didn't need to work so hard to get to Santa has a bad brother. Like, I think, I think you, that's all you need. That's all but... you need. Yeah. And Santa is in it, just a being that happens to exist in, in 2007. And like, we don't need yeah, to no, worry about it. He just exists it. for all time. Like, yeah. you know, or whatever. You don't have to explain that this is a sainthood, the consequence of sainthood. And yeah. That there's a, it all, cause of course, as soon as you do that, you have to say, well, then it extends to the family, but then you got to, <laughs> now you're facing these tough questions of mm-hmm. like, all right, do second cousins count? Yeah. <laughs> who's, how yeah, much can we like, bootstrap here? If if these people continue to have children, and maybe once you become a saint, like your your reproductive organs stop working or maybe. something. I don't know. Maybe that's how maybe that's how God covered for this. Mm-hmm. Um, we ha- we sh- you guys should have had the Pope on to discuss this movie. <sighs> the we, Pope, he, he you would... know what? The Pope wanted to come, but we were like, Emily <laughs> is in is in charge of our Christmas episodes. Yeah, it's true. We so, do. Yeah, you yeah. know, we booked the Pope for later. Yeah, we're having the yeah exactly. We're having the Pope <laughs> on for Pope's Exorcist. Too. I want to <laughs> I want to verify a few things, so I'm going to bring him on for that one. But um, no, I do think you're right that maybe that's one way to do it, but. Here's okay. So suppose either way, the film is very weird because if, <laughs> as you've been pointing out, if like children and so on, and 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 you can effectively like the sphere of immortality grows, right? It would grow exponentially because the familial connections and everything. So there would be a lot of immortal people, right? The world would be highly immortal. Um, right. Okay, but the other way of going, where it's not your children and not your spouse, right? So the so Fred Claus is eternally ageless but um his now wife uh wanda is not okay that's the other way of going it doesn't you can't like infect them then his life sucks yeah because everyone that he will ever you know come to meet and potentially love outside of his immediate nuclear family is gonna he's gonna watch them die and you know this leads to one question i had at the beginning of the film which is like so this guy's very old he's been around for hundreds thousands of years i don't know how old santa is uh but he's and he remains single and now that would be explained on the on this reading where that everyone he's married has died and he's just in <laughs> his 20th 24th iteration of this but that doesn't really explain why he, he goes after wanda with such gusto because that would not that's not the behavior of a guy who knows he's walking into like if he's lucky 50 years of happiness followed by a you know a lifetime of sadness so i don't know um, do we think anybody involved in the production of fred claus talked about these things like obviously somebody <laughs> did i have worked in enough yeah i've worked on one television show but like you know we like yeah. go through all the angles of the thing my cat's here um Hello. Uh, but yeah like yeah, uh, somebody somewhere must have been like talking about this shit. Like it is, it's so it's so obviously the result of a studio note, mm. and it's just like, what are you trying to accomplish here? Yeah. Why are you putting all these rules on this? Say Fred Claus had been a huge hit, and they wanted to make Fred Claus too. Like, how do you continue to like it? Just yeah, I don't know. I uh, I like to think though that uh, the spouses, uh, the spouse of Santa is forever. Yeah, not, not anybody. Like Ooh, they should have just dark. said that spouses don't count. It's just that family unit, and Santa gets there's like a new Mrs. Claus every seventy five years. <laughs> it's like Le- Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Oh, no. Um, sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry. And I should also say, Emily, you've been in a writer's room, and um, I introduced you with a inside joke, um, which I should clarify. So I said, writer of bees, uh, you're a writer on the show Yellow Jackets. So sorry, yep, let me yes. just clarify yes. that. Because the bees are called Yellow Jackets, right? That's and right. Like, That's I am so Yellow trying so wasps. hard to get us to do a Christmas episode. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so... Um, here's why I think they did think about it. So there's a, there's a, not a lot of details in this movie and, uh, I'll give you one towards the end of the movie. This is a huge spoiler, but it doesn't matter. Um, Kevin Spacey's character Clyde is he's, he's sort of rescued from the dark side by Santa and he, he's done, it's done so by Santa showing him empathy for being, you know, he was a bad kid, but he understood why. And he gives him a Superman cape, right? Yeah. And then in the, in the next scene, he's obviously wearing the Superman cape because he's got it tucked under his, his, whatever his lapel. But, uh, but you also see the little string coming out the front, little Superman string coming out the front. I think that's the level of detail that Fred Claus is bringing. And that's why I think the writer's room really was, they really had thought through all the logistics. <laughs> yeah. <here. laughs> Like this, the script for this is from the guy who created This Is Us, among others. And it's just like, okay, like, like there are very talented people who worked on this. And I remember this was like, Vince Vaughn had made stuff since Wedding Crashers, which was his big breakthrough. But this was like the first thing he signed on to after Wedding Crashers. Mm -hmm. And it, it was like a big hyped thing. And then it's just like, yeah, it just, it just, it doesn't, it's again, I'm so struck by how Santa has a brother who sucks is such a good premise. And this movie just like, and like that would not make for a great movie, I'm sure. But it like, you instantly know what that movie is, yeah. but it's yeah. somehow it's not Fred Claus. Like Fred Claus, there's this thing in Hollywood circles that we call the <laughs> promise of the premise, which mm -hmm. is once you have a premise, the audience expects certain things from it and will delight in seeing those things. And Fred Claus somehow despite having Vince Vaughn, who's very good at playing kind of a reprobate, you can't help but love, yeah. just doesn't do, it doesn't go anywhere with that. Yeah. It, you know, it's, there's no real interest in him being kind of a scumbum. He <laughs> has to have a heart of gold from the very first. I think it just, it shoots the movie in the foot. Mm. Right. Yeah. Because we start him off kind of as, you know, he's, he's telling he's a little a girl, he's, man. Like, he's a repo man. And he's like, you're going to thank me later for taking your television and putting it in my house. But then, then we see him with Slam and you're like, this guy's kind of the best. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so let let this comes to the central theme of the film, which is uh no it, well, I I paraphrase it because Laura reads all these kid books and one of them is called No Bad Kids. No Bad Kids. And uh it, it's summarized <laughs> in the 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 you know, the really meaty line that he gets. He's with a tear in his a, a twinkle in his eye. He uh, Vince Vaughn delivers it. That naughty nice list that you got. There's no naughty kids, Nick. They're all good kids. But some of them are scared. And some of them don't feel listened to. Some of them had some pretty tough breaks, too. But every kid deserves a present on Christmas. And, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's a simple message. It's pretty obvious. But I will say, you, if you take out present and you put second chance or love or hope in there and you're like, eh, you know what? It's, that's like, that's the, the, the theme of so many movies that like tug at our heartstrings. And so I think there's something, there's like a nice little, 
lovely core to this film. And I kind of enjoyed watching, yeah. you know, Vince Vaughn sort of shave down the edges a little bit and find it there. Yeah. No, I like actually I I enjoyed this movie far more than I thought I, that I expected to, actually. I um I don't like this movie at all, but yeah. I do think I do I am sort of interested in its as someone whose child is still pre well, they they say some words, but mostly pre-verbal and you know, can't really be reasoned with, mm. you know, and it's just sort of a destructive force of nature. I'm very much like not quite to the point where I need to consider that like my child might be a moral actor, but it's it's coming. Mm-hmm. I can see it coming yeah. right down the right down the, the pike. So like, yeah, I like there's a thing I really like in this movie that is that theme of there are no bad kids. And then contrasted with kind of the cynicism of Fred's like, everybody needs a present. We're going to make a baseball bat and a hula hoop because that's just so easy. We can do it right away. And like, there's a cynicism to that. Yeah. There's like a, there's like a good version of the movie in that scene where Fred gives an inspirational speech that's heartwarming and makes everybody be like, yes, children deserve love and hope at Christmas. And then he's like, and we're going to half-ass it. (laughs) (laughs) I I was convinced though, because he did, he, what it was he did he said that I think it's part it's sort of part of that line or or in another just around that line when he says, um Yeah, but all that matters is that each of the kids get a toy. That they all have something that they can open when they wake up in the morning. Most importantly, that they all know that there's somebody out there who's thinking about them. And that actually was kind of like nice because I I it's contrasted with the 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 situation with Slam, who's a who's an orphan, right? And the, I guess it it gives voice to what he sees his character doing for Slim. It's not like providing like a f- being a father figure, but just like being a guy who takes an interest in this kid, right? Shows him that hey, I'm looking out for you. I've got you, you know, on my mind or that kind of thing. And I think there's that's kind of a, you know, reassure one of those like reassuring. Again, it's like Hallmark card thing, but like it's reassuring and kind of enjoyable. I don't know. I. I I felt like that worked. Uh, it worked. It was enough for me because I, I, I have very high standards when it comes to Christmas movies. So I was just sort of like, yeah, that seems I was the, I was into that theme. I have realized in this year of watching a lot of Christmas movies, both for this and then for the podcast I co-host, um, podcast like it's 1992, that uh, I am normally someone where if there's one scene in a movie that I think is good and the rest of it's a mess, I'm like, that was a five star masterpiece. Perfect <laughs> film. Yeah. But Christmas movies, I'm like weirdly unforgiving. Mm. I'm just like, okay. no, mm-hmm. that was bad. But like, I don't know. Like, I, something in Fred Claus, a movie I don't like, really sticks in my brain. Just, okay. I think it's just something about the way that like, the way that every movie like this has to introduce its own mythology and mm-hmm. has to have its own rules. Yeah. And I'm like, does it though? But yet- <laughs> I do think that a lot of these movies were chasing Elf. You know, another a much yes. better movie that I think doesn't quite work as well as Elf, but I think is is good is this this um uh Ardman movie, Arthur Christmas. But that's another one that's like we got to figure out the in, inner workings of Santa's like operation. And the problem is that like just the second you sit down and think about how Santa's operation works, it all totally falls apart. It all like yeah. he's infinitely wealthy, he's also extremely magical. And like all this stuff just, and you just kind of have to go with it. And the problem with making a movie about Santa, at least not as like a supporting character on the fringes, like Miracle on 34th Street is like, you have to like dig right into that. And I think, I think the, the sort of the genius of Elf is that it's like, okay, 
this is a story about the the supporting characters in Santa's mm-hmm. life. So you don't have to get into the Santa of it all too totally. much. The second that you're like, and I gotta say, Paul Giamatti makes a wonderful Santa. Oh, he's like, so The second fine. that you're like, okay, we gotta explain Santa's whole deal. It just it requires too much of a like buy-in from the audience. And that's what's so fucking weird about every every movie about Santa or TV special about Santa is. Santa requires an immense amount of buy-in that we all just like sort of not all, but like children in households who celebrate Christmas almost all make. Yeah. And then we grow up to adulthood and we're like, yeah, that wasn't true, but we're going to like play along with it for our own kids. So we all already make that buy-in, but then the second you try to literalize it in any way, yeah, it just like starts to feel ghoulish. Yeah, yeah. I, I so I kind of like what they did with it in the sense that they psychologized Santa a little bit r- rather than. I mean, yes, they've tried to also literalize to some extent how the operation <laughs> works, which makes which doesn't make any sense. But um, so the psychologizing begins in the in the beginning, right? When when uh, the the big part is like. Um, Fred, as a child, gives a homemade journal with Nicholas embroidered on the front to Saint to his to his not sainted yet uh, brother, and Nicholas is like, "Thank you so much. I'm gonna give it to this orphan friend of mine who's named Johnny or something." And then Fred is like, obviously upset. He's like, "Why does the kid need a journal with Nicholas embroidered on the front?" And it's so ridiculous. And uh, and but I think this this idea that like. Santa is kind of pathologically a good person. He's what some people call a moral saint, where moral sainthood is actually like not something anyone, when you actually think about what it would be, is not something you would want to strive for because it would involve things like this, like taking a gift, which was which you ought to respond to as like, oh, that was really nice. I'm going to make use of this in my life because it's an enjoyable thing and you did this nice thing for me and and be like, well, it would be better served in the hands of someone who has nothing and gives it to them. That's what the moral saint would do. But that's like, there's something pathological about that and actually quite uh, distasteful. And yeah. that's what, and so then Fred sees that and we through Fred see that and we're like, yeah, Santa's kind of a weirdo. And then he's constantly getting his parents' affection and it's annoying and everything to Fred. But like, anyway, I like that idea that like, f- the of course, Fred's, he's the brother of santa so he's gonna be overlooked but like let's also make santa this guy who you want to hate even though he's such a nice guy yeah and because he has no empathy for a struggle yeah exactly really because he you know he's just like i always do the right thing and i don't have any struggles about it i seem he seems stressed out about his efficiency expert but like when he watches but when he watches you know bad bad behavior in his snow globe or whatever he's not he's not curious about it and he's not, and he has no empathy for it. Whereas, right. like, you know, Fred's like, well, why did they bite the, you know, his, their parents, or what's going on in this story? And Nick is like, what do you mean? I've never, yeah. I've never bit anybody. He's constantly. I've never been... gone into a rage and bashed my sister's dollhouse with a bat. Right. So that yeah. <laughs> There's an interesting suck. phenomenon that you meant you bring you mentioning the snow globe made me think of this. I'm gonna get this fucking podcast episode to like 90 minutes if I have to drag it over the hill myself. Okay. Uh, I, was, I thought we could just wrap it up in 20, honestly. Yeah, well, that's great. That's honestly like we started talking about Fred Claus and I was like, what the fuck are we gonna say about Fred Claus? <laughs> um I got no, did, I could do 10 I, more minutes. This was my idea Saints. again. But there's this interest, like we talked about Elf on the Shelf. Uh, I don't know if we did that on mic or not, but we, we talked did. about Elf on the Shelf and we've talked about Fred Claus and the Snow Globe. There is this marked increase in Santa stories that play around with the idea of the Santa Claus surveillance state mm-hmm. in the post 9-11 era. 
Ooh. Like Elf on the Shelf is that, Fred Claus is that. It's like we're interested in the idea of like Santa is the ultimate like uh, surveillance state, the ultimate. What are those cameras they have in the UK everywhere yeah. mm-hmm. that are just CCTV? Yeah. 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 So like, I think that like I'm fascinated by the way I do think one of the things about Santa that makes him such an enduring icon is he's so malleable. But like I do think this era when we're doing a thing, a lot of things that are about Santa is always fucking watching you. Yeah. You better watch out. Is like that is like a real response to like a thing that was happening in the world where we were suddenly like, oh, there's somebody. For all we know, somebody like the somebody at the NSA is listening to us record this podcast right now. And hello to them and a happy holidays. Yeah. And <laughs> if they're not recording it, I hope they're listening now and uh, subscribe <laughs> at calspod.com. Um, the yeah, I no, I totally agree. But and, and it's interesting then if you if you take that idea of Santa as surveillance state and then you start to then you get all these interesting analogies for how Santa can be. Right. So Santa could be the United States surveying via drone footage, you know, countries in the Middle East or something like that, a kind of keeper of justice, a kind of invisible keeper of justice, like the Dark Knight. And and in some ways, I mean, Santa, by also by judging children, he is positions himself as like the our ultimate, ultimate arbiter of morality, like a judge who decides people's fates in the sense of like, are they good or evil? Um, and, and in that way, he is kind of like God, also God being omnipresent always watching is the same kind of like surveillance state also peeping tom kind of thing and it's interesting that all of these guys are guys <laughs> i just yeah. that was my end rant i don't even know uh, what i was ranting about but i just ended it right there well no like the surveillance state is, is uh, if the surveillance state was run by women boy things would be a lot better there or worse be, or whatever yeah. depends on what dystopian story you're reading um <laughs> Justin, Fred Claus made me think of a philosophical question I okay. wanted to ask you, yes. which is how do we determine which acts are good and which are evil? Oh my God, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, like that's probably like in 101, right? Like it's, that's probably a pretty basic one yeah, that you we guys would, have answered. We figured that ago. one out. Yeah, for sure. That one, that one was, solved. We kind of locked that one down. I don't even um, need to know the answer, so I'm going to leave real quick. <laughs> Laura's peacing for a moment. Uh, she's doing what we call the pee pants, the midnight pee pants. Um, I The answer to that question is that uh it's okay i'll tell you this so it's a that's a question in what people call moral epistemology and that's Mm -hmm. just a fancy way of saying moral and how you do you know basically or study of knowledge study of moral knowledge and um so part of the answer to that question actually it will depend on like how you answer that question will depend on what you think moral facts are so some people think there aren't any moral facts, in which case then there can't be moral knowledge because there, there's no true moral claims at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people think there are moral facts in some sense, but they're very different from like ordinary mundane facts like the table is brown or something like that. Um, they think this makes moral facts either harder to know or easier to know than the table is brown. So it depends on which way you go. So if you think moral facts are like that that you can only kind of grasp via a very special way of thinking, but you can't see them, which kind of sounds right. I mean, when you think about it, like, how do we figure out what's right or wrong? We don't, like, do scientific experiments. We, we just think about made-up scenarios. But then you think, like, it is very mysterious how you would come to know something like that that's in- supposed to be independent of your mind by just by thinking. That's, like, very strange, right? Yeah. And so then people get worried about that, and they go, if those were the moral facts, maybe we wouldn't know anything about them. 
And so then other people say, okay, the moral facts aren't like table facts. Those are objective and you can scientifically examine them. The moral facts are um, somehow like relativistic. So they're like, they're sort of true for you when you believe it. And if somebody else believes something different, the same sort of fact would be true, sorry, false for them. So they think these things are like relativized. Uh, Then it would be a bit easier to know, but uh, because maybe you can just kind of know your own moral code introspectively, and then you would know which Mm -hmm. things are true sort of for you. Uh, but then that people get worried about that because it threatens to make moral disagreement look like it's a ep, like totally um, epiphenomenal. Like it's not really, it doesn't really track anything real. Uh, because if you're like, no, killing is wrong, and I'm like, no, it's it's actually okay to kill. Uh, we we would maybe just be talking about totally different things, like your moral code, my moral code, and then we wouldn't really be disagreeing. So that was my crash course in metaethics. And if you want to see the whole thing, you can come to take my class, which I'll probably offer next year. Uh, which of those theories do you think Santa Claus subscribes to? Oh, I would say Santa Claus is a, in this movie, is a moral objectivist. So he thinks these are the real moral facts and uh, they're not these relativized things. And he probably thinks he has perfect access to them uh, by just by thinking. Right. And, uh, right. But, yeah. but Fred's kind of a moral relativist. Maybe. Because Fred's like, yeah. situations call for their own morality just am i understanding this correctly via it's, fred claus it's that's one way to interpret him the other way to interpret fred would be as an objectivist but just someone who has a different moral view than than santa so uh so they disagree about whether um kids are ultimately morally bad or not and uh and then you might just think yeah they're both moral objectivists they think there are true facts about these things and they just have a different view about what those facts are. So that's a, I mean, I, he could be a more of a relativist. Actually, the thing that Fred is closest to is a slightly orthogonal position called moral particularism. Oh my gosh. And okay. The, here's the, okay. So here's, this is the, like, we're going to get real into it. So here's a fun, I'll just say briefly what the view is and I'll tell you a funny uh, comment about how the view is related to Hollywood. So Jonathan Dancy uh, is the person who most prominently defends moral particularism. And the view of moral particularism is that there's no, moral um calculus so there's no way to determine in any situation like independently of looking at that situation what the morally right thing to do is because there's no like like thing function you can plug the situation into that would output a a moral fact and so you have to look at each situation and kind of evaluate it on its own you can't use some pre-existing moral code to do that uh, and Jonathan Dancy, professor at UT Austin, f- most famously defends his view. His son is Hugh Dancy. Oh. So, okay. yeah. So Jonathan Dancy has been on a couple late night shows. I think Craig Kilborn, because Hugh Dancy and Claire Danes both, I think Claire Danes mentioned it on that show that her, hu- that her father-in-law is a philosopher. And Craig, Ki- it was Craig Kilborn, I, Craig Ferguson, I think was like, oh my God, I need to have him on the show. And then like a few months later, he <laughs> had Jonathan Dancy, professor of philosophy, very much not uh, like, you know. A celebrity. A celebrity on a show. It was very cool. So. Have you been on a talk show? You should be on a No, I'm not married to anyone famous. Okay, well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> or we're going to make you famous so that Justin can be on a talk show. Or maybe maybe, maybe our son can marry someone famous. That's how it actually works. There we go. Okay, and then we yeah. all get immortality fame. Yes. Fabulous.
right now out there is like a three-year-old who's going to become the most famous person on earth and your child and that person are going to end up <laughs> it's going to be wonderful it's be our good. kid does I'm have so interesting he like he wanted to make a youtube video the other day yeah he's got fame and he told me he mind. wanted to be rich and famous so. I mean, I do too. Um, so, yeah, what are we I, doing no, here? Go ahead. We're trying to be rich and famous, right? <laughs> That's what we're doing. Uh, yeah, it's working out great. <laughs> it's like the it's like the worst possible way to try to do this. I guess you the, know what people love philosophy. You know what? You know what people love. If it turns out like jumping, like doing stupid things on TikTok, like falling, prat falling, and stuff, that would get you a lot of fame. Mm. I don't know what happens on TikTok. You just explained to me what Ugly Hot is. So, I'm oh, like, can we can we do a sidebar, Emily, on Ugly Hot? Do you know what Ugly Hot? I don't is? know what this is. I want to hear about it. Okay, so let's just do let's just do five minutes on Ugly Hot. Okay, let's I mean, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> we got to get to the bottom of this. So, one of my students mentioned in class that there is a concept called Ugly Hot, and what it means is basically oh let me we're supposed to give examples so they, it's a contrast thing. So, you, like, there are people who are hot hot, which is like supposed to be Channing Tatum. And mm -hmm. Scarlett Johansson. Those are paradigmatically okay. hot, hot people. And then ugly, hot people. What's a good example, Laura? Who would be ugly, hot? Oh, the guy from The Bear. What's that guy's name? Oh, um, uh, Jeremy Allen White or the other guy from The Bear? Ibn Moss Barak. No, Jer Jeremy Allen Jeremy White. Jeremy Allen White is supposed to be ugly, hot. And then the other one is uh, maybe Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Adam yeah. Driver. Okay. So, all right. Are we? Do you feel like we're, we're grokking it? Like, okay. So, I think. What I would, think so. I think it's very interesting that all the ugly hot examples I've ever heard are men. But go ahead. That's yes. what exactly what I said, so, Emily. Okay. <laughs> I was like, uh, ladies are not allowed to be ugly hot. But they're just called very good character actresses. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Let me throw a few examples, potential okay. examples, and then Laura's going to make fun of me. Okay. So, all right. First example: Imogen Poots. No, I mean. Mm. No, she's just is hot, she, hot. Is she just you? Want <laughs> you just want to? Justin loves Imogen Poots. I just want to. I just, I'm just putting it out there as I a also, possibility. In this conversation revealed to Justin that he has a formula for his type, <laughs> which is big eyes, strong brow. Come on, we don't need to do this on mic. <laughs> um. All right. Wait. What was the other example? What's I going gave? on? I think there's a baby off camera. Okay. There's a baby oh, off camera. Yeah. We we we're we're gonna be visited by. We're gonna get a visit from a special Ooh. scene. Excellent. Um, but please continue telling me which women you think are ugly. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, what was the other example? Women, women, ugly hot. Uh, you did have one last night. I forgot. I fell asleep. I was, mm. I was just, I was too mad about the whole thing. Now there, now there's someone who's definitely hot, hot. Just perfect baby. Is it weird if someone was yes. like, your baby is hot? Yes, I guess that's that why really she's weird. Say it that. was so weird. That's I why should I just said, feel like she's, she's, she's a perfect she baby. She looks amazing. Say Those hi. Eyes. Hello. Say hi. Can you wave? Can you wave? Leave all this in. This is yes. beautiful podcasting. This is like it's an audio medium. We have the baby mm. attacking the mic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is she, is she, is she walking? She probably is at this point. She's right? not quite. cruising. Cruising, yeah. Um, she's like uh, uh, not quite. Like she could walk. You can tell that she could stand. She just is like. She doesn't, she doesn't like, like to do things until she knows she can do them, which is how yes. I know she's my child. Yeah. Um, he she was like, the same. She, uh, but she's very. Her vocabulary is surprisingly large um but it's not clear that she knows what any of the words mean outside of mama so but um, she's doing it good for her yeah. what is this her podcast debut 
<laughs> probably <laughs> not. She she's might probably be on 92 on like 100 times already. I, just, I don't know if she's ever talked there, though. Yeah, I mean, I've been listening. I don't Can know if I've heard it. Can we get one any. more? One more. Did you, you didn't watch Fred Claus with me at all. So, but what's your favorite Christmas movie? <laughs> It's it's the Bluey episode, Christmas Swim. Okay, all right. You want to get on the floor? Again. Oh, that's one a great second. one. <laughs> that's a great one. Um, uh, I, I, here's another example of ugly hot. Uh, so behind oh, em, boy. Emily right now is a picture of Phoebe Waller Bridge. Is she ugly hot? Maybe. I, uh, I could, maybe. Uh, Come on, I, here's the, here's the woman I thought of. Okay. Who I think you could arguably say, I think Barbara Streisand. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Because she's got like a real attractiveness, like mm -hmm. sexual energy to her. But like, yeah, she's mm -hmm. not like perhaps like the, I think, yeah, the I like think mathematical features of, you know, of of um of like what you consider conventionally attractive. Right. I think this is very much about someone who has a kind of specific sexual energy that transcends their actual physical features. And I think that increasingly women who are famous are not allowed to have that quality. And in old Hollywood, mm -hmm. you had a lot more of it. That's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I was thinking it was a, a little bit along the lines of like, they are unconventionally, like they look a little bit unconventional, but they're, they're still nonetheless attractive. There's something striking about them. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I think another example of this for guys that people put out there was like Willem Dafoe mm -hmm. and um, Steve Buscemi. And I mean, mm -hmm. I don't I don't want to say, if, is he hot? I don't know. But, you know, he's he got, he definitely has a look and yeah, 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 he's yeah. got a strong energy. And maybe yeah. Pete Davidson? No, this, know. no. But, okay. <laughs> but this is interesting. Like, yeah, the old Hollywood thing. I'm thinking now of like Lauren Bacall. Like, like when you see, like when she like looks, I mean, she's, she's gorgeous. I think that's, but she, like she no. has like an unnerving like cat quality to her. Uh -huh. You know, when you first, like you're like, whoa, like <laughs> mm -hmm. when she first comes on screen. But it's like, yeah, there's an energy there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, I mm -hmm. think are both kind of in that space too. But yeah. yeah, it's like nowadays you just you I if you get a woman who is conventionally attractive but perhaps not conventionally hot, she tends to be a comedian. Like I don't I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I don't know if she exudes an intense sexual energy, you know? Like I just yeah. I yeah, I think uh I think it's just another way that our standards around women have have shifted. Yeah. Uh, sometimes to the to the detriment of women. Sometimes. This is great. We've somehow gone to <laughs> very some interesting places in this episode on Fred Claus. Well, uh, but well, do do we think the stars of Fred Claus, Paul Giamatti and Vince Vaughn, are ugly hot? Oh, great question. Uh, Giamatti, I would say one hundred percent. But the only question I don't know is Vince Vaughn. I mean, is he? He's he's. He feels like there's something conventionally attractive about him. Yeah, I think he had some ugly hot energy in two thousand seven. Okay, well, I was going to say hot hot, but. Oh, hot, hot. Yeah. I'm, uh, oh, interesting. I mean, he does. God bless. He's I, I don't want to like I don't want to I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. He just looks so tired. I just want him to yeah. like get some sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's some close ups in this movie where I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> like he cuts, he's he's tired. Get some sleep. We also watching it 4K. So, yeah, really. No, I actually okay. don't know if it was 4K. <laughs> no, I, I yeah. Watching this, I was like, oh, there's so many bags under his eyes. Yeah. Poor Vince Vaughn. Yeah. And like. A thing I find fascinating is Vince Vaughn became like a guy that they made released a Christmas movie about like every year. Like he did four Christmases with Reese Witherspoon, mm -hmm. which was a massive hit and which I don't think anybody has talked about since 2010. And like 
it, you know, uh, there's some, there was something about him that made people be like, cause I think Vince Vaughn is a specific energy that has to be offset perfectly. And the reason wedding crashers worked is a wedding is an environment in which Vince Vaughn's energy mm. naturally yeah. clashes in an appealing way. And people were like, well, Christmas should also be that, but somehow mm. it isn't like, it feels like he should have done like a thing about like a guy who loves going to children's birthday parties. Like that would have been the next step. <laughs> I think one thing I like about Vince Vaughn is I wonder, is he one of the last of those rugged leading men? You know, like not the, that used to be the, the norm of leading men. Like in some ways, Stallone, whose brothers in this movie, we should, mm. we got to get to that scene. Mm. We got to um, talk about the siblings but, you know, Like Stallone or like the, you know, the, the kind of 80s leading men who weren't, that like so strikingly attractive they, mm. did, they didn't all look like jared leto or have the abs of ryan gosling or the rock you know what yeah I mean? and is he one of the last of that kind of just kind of rugged he's a comedian though like, comedians have different rules was he a comedian before he was an actor vince vaughn's always done like comedy though no true but like i'm just saying i think there's different rules for comedies but i think he, adam yeah. sandler's still killing it but ryan like reynolds Netflix. is like the highest comedy guy kind of right that's now, you true know? i don't know he like definitely broke through in swingers in a more comedic role and then hollywood was like this guy is gonna do everything and they put him in a bunch of dramas and they kind of fizzled and then he starts doing the raunchier comedies and that's when he hits for like five years um incidentally i really like that movie the breakup the peyton reed movie with him and jennifer aniston i I think it's a little bit underrated uh so people should check that out if they watched fred claus and were like i want to see this guy but like (laughs) slightly more appealing right (laughs) i want to be talked i don't want to see him just teach an elf how to dance. I'm like, <laughs> hey, Laura, do you know how movie trailers are made? Don't movie studios make them? Actually, they're made by independent trailer agencies. So, wait, could I make movie trailers? Yeah, but first you'll have to learn how. And lucky for you, the refinery, one of the trailer agencies that makes many of the trailers you see for major movies, has an online training program that teaches you how to do it. Cool. How does it work? The program walks you through the process of making an actual movie trailer using the same project files that the real editors use. And at every step of the process, you get feedback from real trailer editors who work at the refinery. Oh, so at the end of the program, I'll know how to make my own movie trailers? Yes. And not only that, when you submit your final trailer, they'll review it. And if they're impressed, they might invite you for an interview to work at the refinery. No way. So what's the program called? Well, it's called The Art of the Trailer, and you can find it at maketrailers.com. But if I go, will I have to pay full price for the course? Not at all. If you use the promo code COWS at checkout, you'll get 20% off for a limited time. COWS? As in cows in the field? Yes. So go to maketrailers.com and use promo code COWS for 20% off. Start learning how to be a trailer editor today. Can I ask, does, does anybody remember, do you, does anybody remember when the elf yourself phenomenon happened? Oh, like that jib jab, I think? Jib jab, <laughs> yes. When were we all elfing ourselves? I feel like it was right in this moment because this movie Wait, looks like a, like a, it's like a two hour can, long elf yourself. Can you explain elf yourself? I think I remember this, but okay, just for you take, the audience. You take a picture know. of yourself, yeah, yeah. you cut out your face, yeah. real jagged like, and then they stick it into a bunch of like, you know, I don't know, like really 
<laughs> terribly animated elves that are dancing in crazy That's ways. right. They were dancing. They were dancing. This oh movie is an elf yourself. Yes. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Uh, no, I, I actually, I, so. Uh, um, is she drinking your partner, coffee? My writing partner in Hollywood used to be uh, uh, Crystal, the co-creator of Arden, the podcast I do. And for a while there, we were like represented. My daughter's trying to drink coffee. Which I know. I'm just watching her hug it. <laughs> you don't. You don't even have the right hole in your mouth. <laughs> She's going all the way um, back. Bottoms we, up. For a while there, we were represented by a management company, and there was this other guy in the management company. It was like four. So they sort of brought up people that they thought were like promising writers who didn't yet have jobs. And there was this other guy there who was like the cream of the crop and everybody really loved him. And his job was like, he was like the chief creative officer for jibjab.com. <laughs> and I was always like, that's a job. But like he was, he created a lot of the jibjab stuff. Everybody loves. I think he was instrumental to Elf Yourself. So if you're wow, out there, wow, I've wow. forgotten his name, but if you're out there listening, thanks. It was very nice that one time you invited me over to your apartment. Also, <laughs> thank you for making Elf the self thing because that that was super fun and provided we a lot all of joy. elved ourselves a lot it of joy great. for a lot my of my sister elved herself with all her cat with yeah. her cats also it possibly inspired the CGI of this film so that's what I'm saying um, <laughs> so in this movie you might watch this movie and think all right this this is twenty minutes in you're like I get the I get this movie right and and then an elf shows up and it's not. Like they do forced perspective. I mean, the Lord of the Rings is six years earlier and you can't tell. There's no elf yourselfing happening. They just, you know, took Elijah Wood's performance and digitally put it on with a Peter uh, Ian McKelling's performance. And uh, here what they do is they take John Michael Higgins's face and they just <laughs> stick it on some poor little person's body <laughs> Right, who's dancing around, and and then they and then they have to keyframe it, right? And so the keyframes are like stuttering because they're not smooth at all, and so it looks like his face is just floating on top of this poor person's body. Yeah, I know, and I don't know, like <laughs> why could like okay, for example, there is a there's a Santa DJ, L Luda, Luda's Ludacris, in this movie. same thing, yeah, Luda. In most of his scenes, he's just like by he's like at his like disc jockey setup talking. Yes, and they could have just I mean, listen, it'd be a weird day for Luda, but they could, he's already wearing a silly outfit. They could have put him in the outfit, made a giant turntable, mm. made larger furniture, <laughs> yeah. and then it, for the scene where he battles Luda for no reason, then they could have you know done their trickery where they needed to. But like, why were they just putting Luda's face on somebody else's body for that? All those scenes. It looks crazy town. I'm just thinking about how in the Lord <laughs> of the Rings, Peter Jackson built a set yeah. where he, which would allow him to do forced perspective and not only forced perspective, but have the camera be able to move within the set and keep the perspective. So the camera would be on something that would move with the objects in the scene. It yeah. would allow them to maintain eye lines. And it took, this probably was like a mathematical puzzle that took them weeks to figure out. Yeah. No, and they're then not this doing movie, that in Fred class. Yeah, <laughs> this movie, <laughs> They're just like, look what we could do. We could take, we could just go in Photoshop and cut this guy's face off and plaster it on like Leatherface wearing a mask. I also love the implication that elves have not heard music outside of Here Comes Santa Claus. Because <laughs> 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 like, 
It's you remember those like a possibly apocryphal stories about uh, teenagers hearing rock around the clock in the film Blackboard Jungle and ripping seats out of the theater and like throwing them at the at the, <laughs> the screen and or the possibly apocryphal stories of riots inter uh, erupting after Igor Stravinsky's The Rites of Spring was right. produ- uh, produced for the first time. It's like that. The yes. elves hear rubbernecking by Elvis Presley and are like ready to overthrow the North Pole. <laughs> Yes, it is true. Well, I mean, to be fair, when, um, when, whatever we saw, we all saw the movie Elvis. We saw Elvis. And we all saw it. We saw when those Things young women crazy. saw Elvis do his little shaky moves for the first time. I liked though when they showed one elf who has her hands over her ears, and she's like, "It sounds so angry," which is what I said <laughs> when you like played me like metal, Justin. <laughs> oh, like heavy metal? Yeah, I like yeah. played Metallica for Laura. She's like. Ooh. <laughs> oh no. Now that I played you like serious death metal, I'll cut it in right now. Yeah. death metal (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no i agree i I think it's a great scene and it's it's a fun scene i mean also we're deeply in the we're in the barrels of the uncanny valley during that scene because not only is there one guy whose face has been mashed on it's seemingly they've mashed like hundreds of faces on these people probably many of them are them fully cgi'd that is a very weird scene but i think the scene where he teaches willie how to dance is even weirder yeah I uh, this actually brings me to a point I wanted to talk about, which is this movie's cast a lot of fantastic uh, woman performers: uh, Elizabeth Banks, Rachel yeah. Weisz, uh Kathy Bates, Just and uh, Miranda Richardson. Yeah, gives none of them anything to do. No. It is a sheer true waste. You got Paul Giamatti and Miranda Richardson playing Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus, and the best it can think of to do with them is Mrs. Claus is sometimes worried about Santa. It just is like, no, this movie should be like they're in couples counseling. And like, it's, you know, I just want to see them like having like, you know, tete-a-tete, but no, Fred's got to be there. I don't know. I feel like this movie really wasted, it wasted all of its cast. Like it's not using Vince Vaughn well, you know? (laughs) Only when it's arguably using well is Paul Giamatti, and I think that's much more on Giamatti than on the film itself. But mm-hmm. yeah, I will say. In Do defen- we like the snowball fight? Well, I was going to say in defense of Mrs. Claus, I feel like she's got some good energy with with Fred. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, they got they have a few quick quippy lines they get to throw back and forth. Actually, to the point where I was like, "There's a weird energy." Like, oh. did they date back in the day? <laughs> before she before became, she, right? You know, you get that vibe. Mm. Interesting. Anyway, that, but they haven't told Nick. But we also know, I mean, we do have some couples therapy information. We know that things are not going great for them bedroom-wise. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we learned that- <laughs> At the intervention. That Santa's uh, workshop doesn't make uh, Viagra. <laughs> sorry, that's a really off-color joke. I'm sorry. 
This is right around the time that uh, uh, the HBO show Tell Me You Love Me, which is about a sex therapist or a therapist trying to help uh, married couples with their sex lives, is airing. Mm. And uh, I really think that Fred Claus should have done like a Tell Me You Love Me gag that no one would re- understand was happening but me. Like People <laughs> don't remember that show exists. It was an HBO show. It was like one of their first shows after The Sopranos ended. And they were like, look, we're still... We're still HBO. We still do brave things, and it was canceled after a season. So, wait, what was that show about? I I don't even know it. It was about a therapist and I think three different couples who were not having sex, Mm. and it was about her trying to help them with the problems in their sex lives. They actually renewed it for a second season, and then they saw the scripts and canceled it. (laughs) Oh wow! Wow. Tell me you love me. Uh, honestly, some really great stuff in that show. Uh, uh, and I think uh, if you can find the DVD set, which mm. is probably long since out of print, you should. I don't know if you should buy it, but it, you know, if you're curious, maybe eBay. I'm going to see okay. how much it would cost. It's not not there, not on Max. The first season. No, is not. for oh, some reason they, they haven't put it. it on They Max. buried it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I know I agree about the female characters. I mean, it's rough. And uh, I, I know Rachel Vice. I do love her so much. And uh, I think, she, you know, I, I Wanda's delightful in this movie. Yeah, I think like she's whatever. She's doing what she can with the character. I think like Rachel Vice is she's, she's in a good place in her career right now. She it seems like she's she's cooking with gas. But you can buy Tell Me You Love Me on eBay for seven dollars. So $7. you have no excuse now. Seven dollars. <laughs> And if you leave us a rate, rating or review, we'll buy it for you. <laughs> I don't know if we're allowed to say that, actually. That's sort of probably illegal. <laughs> you can't, like, buy people's reviews. I don't know. Maybe you can, actually. I don't know. Amazon probably does this. But it's probably not good to announce it. Um, so uh, I'm not doing that. Uh, but no, Rachel Weisz, She's this is one of her first roles after she wins the Oscar for The Constant Gardener. Yep. She signs on to Fred Claus. And it's like, okay, sure. Good for you. <laughs> she's like, I got to cash that paycheck now. Siblings Anonymous? Oh, yeah. Jeez, I forgot about siblings. Thank you. How can we not talk about siblings oh, anonymous? What a crazy ass oh, scene. Oh, my gosh. What a what a wild scene. Now, um, we what didn't... Do you th- how do you think that came together? Yeah. So we didn't realize that that was actually uh, Fred Stallone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recognized Stephen Baldwin. Before, sure. But, but, yeah. That but one then, we knew. And I didn't recognize... Uh, what was his name? Joe Clinton? Roger Clinton. Roger Clinton. Roger Clinton. I didn't recognize that. And so when, so when the guy who's... I thought it would, to, to be fair, just, just so you understand how much this movie had ruined my mind, when Fred Stallone, what is his name? Sorry. Frank Stallone. Frank Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> when Frank Stallone is telling these things, and I'm like, that looks like Sylvester Stallone, but it doesn't sound like him. I thought they had CGI'd some, they'd done some like AI they CGI. they done like a deep fake? Yeah, where they deep faked him and it didn't quite look right. My mind was melted at this point <laughs> because I was seeing so much weird, uncanny CGI that I was like, something weird is happening. It must be CGI. <laughs> <laughs> and I, cl- I looked it up. Oh, Laura looked it up. She's like, I got to the bottom of this right now. And uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I don't Frank's know. One who has a music career on his own and like, apparently, I mean, he's, He's also he's a famo in his own right, but sure. I just I don't know anything. But about he's the not Sly Stallone. But he's not Sly Stallone exactly. Yeah. I mean yeah. Stephen Baldwin. I love Stephen Baldwin in The Usual Suspects. Do you? Yeah, okay. I think he's great in The Usual Suspects. <laughs> and Roger Clinton, I loved him in what movies was Roger Clinton in besides this one? <laughs> he was in some movies. But like, what do you, how do you think they were like? We need a bunch of 
siblings of famous like how are they we gonna put it out this? on craigslist <laughs> pull it all together yeah i don't know i'm i'm, a- I'm asking chat gpt questions about fred claus <laughs> okay emily's gonna get back <laughs> to us with chat gpt's filling in the blanks of fred claus i i don't know i liked the scene a lot though it's a i good loved scene. it i think it's yeah. it's it's it very didn't funny need to be there at all and i was so glad they kept it in i'm so glad they went for it yeah I- the the time the reason I became obsessed with Red Claws obsessed is the wrong word but I did make you do a podcast Intrigued episode about it so by, I guess you know yeah uh, is I came upon the snowball fight scene on cable one night in 2018 and I stopped to watch it and then the siblings anonymous scene is relatively soon after that and I was like what is this movie because yeah. they they you know they were they were interesting in different ways I think the siblings yeah. anonymous scene is kind of amusing in a cameo way mm-hmm. but like. They felt like they were from different movies. Mm-hmm. And then I, it's like that cable thing where it loops around and shows you the movie again. So I watched like the first 10 minutes and I was like, wait, when you become a saint, you're immortal. <laughs> Emily was like, <laughs> and your brother? Amazing, right? It's top notch. That suddenly the lore was coming in and Emily was hooked. She was like, I got to get in on this movie. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really. I it's it, the, the, the tone of the movie is very strange. I don't really understand how it's fitting all these pieces together. I will say also, I mean, if in the abstract, when you're watching the movie for the first time, when you see Vince Vaughn is a, a fully grown adult man whose best friend seems to be an eight-year-old child, that is also very strange. Yeah. I don't know that it's his what best friend. What is that friend? about? Like, he doesn't all have these any movies? friends. What's that? He doesn't have any other friends. I'm just responding to Laura. So Laura's like, I don't know if it's his best friend. He doesn't literally doesn't hang out with any other person. Yeah, he's just looking yeah. out for, for Slam. All right, sorry. I don't know why you're so weirded out by this. Slam's a very nice kid, and and it's nice for Fred to look out for him. There is this thing where in these movies, you know, there has to be that kind of single dad dynamic. Yeah. But like mm-hmm. Vince Vaughn doesn't. The problem is he can't have a kid here because that introduces a bunch of weird questions about the film's cosmology. So he's friends with an orphan. But then at the end, they again, because it introduces so many questions about the film's cosmology, he can't just adopt Slam. Yeah. And that's the obvious place that the movie's going. Yeah. So they're like, and then Slam found a family who would love him even more. So Slam, we don't have to worry about if Slam is uh, now uh, immortal. Because you got to figure, okay, so this immortality work if you adopt someone? It must. Yeah. If Santa adopts a child. You're in the family. Has, yeah. Well, the language is family. And so it's all going to come down to family. And if they mean biological family then no but if they mean family in if they mean the... spouses then i can't mean i mean well that's... no but they specifically say spouse and family but mm. then but what do we what does family mean you know like it's so it's going to come down to that i want to go with emily and say yes he would get the immortality bug if he was adopted because he would be part of the family but i have a feeling that a movie made in 2007 might not that might not have been in the intentions. Oh yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh that, but I feel like they skirt around that question by being like, and then he found a different family. Well, that's uh, sad. Yeah, a black if, family, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. also that thing where you're like, he can't adopt him because he's white. <laughs> yeah, that was my initial reaction. I was like, are we are we saying that in this movie? And then I was like, oh no, they're trying to not make you ask questions about if Slam <laughs> about is now an immortal yeah. eight-year-old. Yeah. But he's cool because he sounds... can just like hang out with him as his baseball coach. Yeah, that's true. Which is perfect. Yeah, which is, is a true. perfect. Yeah. What if, what if you lived in a community, and the base, the little league baseball coach <laughs> didn't age? Yeah, he yeah. was a <laughs> vampire, basically. Um, uh, would you notice though? Like, would there be enough movement around? Well, that, okay, like... but that's the thing. Twilight addresses this 
So yeah, you just got to move every couple you years. You move every few years. And so Fred would need to start moving, you know, every probably 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Probably the way he had been living in Chicago, he could have stayed there for some time. But now that he's coaching Little League, he's got to move around. That's actually pro- – now I just answered my own question. That's probably why he doesn't have any friends. Yeah, that's what you said when you said, why is he so lonely? And I said, because, like, what's he going to do? Like, well, people are going to ask questions. Yeah, but you could still make friends. I mean, I was kind of implicitly He could go thinking, to, like, trivia night and stuff. Yeah, you could, you ha- know? You could, you could hang out with adults. <laughs> yeah, but then, like, not have any la- – like, you just, like, do activities with friends and then, you know, then kind of float out of those activities and do other activities. That sounds like being a friend to me, but actually, I think <laughs> I think Laura – I think Laura has a thicker sense of friendship than me because I, I, otherwise I have no friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, they better count as friends if you see them once a year and you're friendly with them and you, <laughs> you're colleagues with them, right? That means you're friends, right? I have friends, right? Of course, honey. Okay. <laughs> I feel like friendship is is infinitely malleable and like morality, sometimes defined by the person. Like mm-hmm. I think my definition of friends is different from your definition of friends is different from your definition of friends. Uh I think that ever I think that you're both my friends and we've never actually met. So That's true. there you go. Actually, yeah. our Christmas. kid had a converse had a question about that earlier. I said something about I was like, oh, I'm gonna talk to my friend Emily about a movie and he was like who which emily because he's known some emily's and i was yeah. like well emily lives in california and he's like what have you when did we see emily and i was like well we actually have not seen emily in person he was like but you can't be friends with somebody you haven't seen and i was like yeah. wow okay <laughs> i will say though i will say i have seen you emily i'm looking at you right now i see yeah. you, your i see you via your digital representation on my screen but the reason i see you is because you are the causal source of that digital representation you see through a uh, a picture or photograph of something the way you see through a window or a the mirror. way you see through a snow globe when you watch them when they're <laughs> Yes, actually true. You would see them because whatever is you're seeing in that that that's how I check that representation is through my snow globe. Anyway, sorry. Thank you. I feel so flattered. (laughs) It's so nice. Um, How do we feel about the presentation of the North Pole in this film? And how do we feel about the presentation of the North Pole in any film like this in an age when climate change is such a pressing concern? No. <laughs> mm, good questions. Yes. Many questions. Emily, I want you to take this one first. You came really hard hitting tonight, Emily. I know. I really feel like Fred Claus will unlock the secrets of the universe. I actually like, I love that like weird. Okay. I realized this yesterday. My dream in life is to dress like a sexy elf, mm. like a sexy Christmas elf. Like Charlene's like, outfit? Or yeah, she's not an elf, like sure. Or but if you've ever seen, it's elf adjacent. Um, if you've ever seen uh, Zoe Deschanel at the end of yes. Elf, yep. love that. Yep, love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an Anna Kendrick movie where she plays Santa's daughter, and like I watched that and was like, well, that's my aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I think I may have aged out of the age in which it's like acceptable to dress like a sexy elf. But can I, I mean, ask though? Because I'm I'm having trouble like just remembering. Maybe I'm gonna. Is it like the fur? Is it the pointy? Yeah, shoes? I think it's it's like, very what's... much the the kind of the fur and like uh-huh. the colors mm-hmm. and yeah, I you know um the, or like the outfit that Annie wears in the community musical episode. That's <laughs> just like my thing. I just wanna so but I do love the depiction of the North Pole in cinema and this in this film i think like my my daughter is very mad right now oh <laughs> so i'm seeing if i have to go monitor this um 
I, I do love the depiction of the North Pole in cinema as like kind of like I don't know, kind of like a like a cross between like a painting and a video game level, and like uh, 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 you know, just a world full of light, and everything seems like it's made out of gingerbread. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie's depiction of the North Pole is a little bit again. I find it lacking compared to like Elf's depiction. It's so much better than the Polar Express's depiction. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a f- movie that's fucked up about Santa. That movie. <laughs> that yep. movie is like that's that's got some goddamn philosophical questions in it because uh, it's like yes. santa only works if you believe in it and mm-hmm. i have this little bell that'll prove it and then like there's just a guy going around shaking a bell and being like do you hear this bell and if you don't you don't believe in santa but he does yeah no religious purity test i hated that movie i've always hated <laughs> it i've always hated that book i find it well i don't actually know i haven't seen it in a long time but i, I i've never seen the movie i find it the, seems I find like it wildly popular no now, it's, it's like it's totally... somebody who has a child and is interested in going to child activities like yeah. i feel like people are always just like do you want to watch polar express all the time although you know what it is about polar express i don't like the book either but um and it and as a december baby it was read to me a lot <laughs> um but like i um I do really like the idea of being cozy in my jammies on a train with Coco. That's yeah, no, amazing. That's right. If I could build a whole movie around that, you know, I'm Snow there. Piercer. There just has to be I, all the Santa stuff too, I guess. Snowpiercer. I, I got really into Christmas when I first moved to California. Like that's when I became like a Christmas person. And it mm-hmm. was because I lo- I missed snow. I missed seasons. Yeah. And like I love that. I do love that Christmas aesthetic. But I think ultimately what it is that I want is like either to be in a small town at Christmas or to be in New York City at Christmas. Oh, like interesting. Those are the two yeah. acceptable Christmases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to be like in a okay. ski lodge kind of thing or at Rockefeller at Center. At Rockefeller Center, yeah. 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 Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um I know yeah. the Texas Christmas was a strange one too. Everything's very fake, you know, as you can imagine. Of course, yeah. I mean, but yeah. <laughs> I I don't have strong opinions on Christmas aesthetic. So I'm going to bounce this one to Laura. I mean, how did you feel about the North Pole? It wasn't very cozy. I don't know. It didn't feel that imaginative or interesting. It kind of, yeah, it felt like they like pulled out some mall sets and called it a day. Well, apparently it was the, it was like one of the sets, the, the, the like exterior behind the, the, um, the workshop was the 1989 Batman set. That makes sense to me. They were just like, what do we got? Like Go- Gotham City. They were just paint like it, using parts paint of it, it. Put some fake candy on it. Done. Dump. I do enjoy how much snow they had. Like everybody is just covered in gobs of fake snow. And I was wondering in their snowball fight, I was like, how much fake snow did they ingest during the making of this movie? I wonder. Not safe. <laughs> you now that you, like the North Pole does look like an outdoor mall in California. <laughs> yeah. It's just like everything is covered in snow. But yeah, it's uh <laughs> Uh, it definitely is a, a world in which, you know, it, it seems like, God, it just, it seems like a, a mall in 2007 threw up on the North Pole. <laughs> so honestly, if that's the case, and I said some nice things about this movie's aesthetic, but if that's the case, then I'm glad that the Arctic sea ice is melting. The, this whole thing can sink to the bottom of the ocean. And I, you know, I'm sure nothing bad will happen from that. That's very Clyde of you, Emily. And I just want to know. You want to move over to Clyde, your this, favorite character. My favorite character, the Grinch of the whole mm, story, Clyde. Justin loves Clyde. I don't love Clyde. No, you are Clyde. Yeah, you don't like Christmas. I'm very into efficiency. You love efficiency. Yeah, you wear glasses. Yeah, yeah, I hate. Yeah, (laughs) I was, I was probably on the naughty list because I was bullied. (laughs) Um, 
yeah, no, I, I, I think you know, Clyde. First of all, other you know, let's talking about unnecessary cosmology. There's also the bureaucratic cosmology of this film, which is that Who's Santa that? has to report to some governing board, which governs all of the mystical creatures, including the Easter Bunny and, and so on. And the Tooth Fairy. And the Tooth Fairy, and is, th- is thinking about consolidating their operations in the South Pole. I mean, this is t- not necessary, but also, like, I'm really into it because it raises a lot of interesting questions. <laughs> I thought we were going to get more Clyde stuff. So many Santa movies have, if you've ever seen Santa Claus, the movie from 1985, one of the worst movies ever made, but it is, a lot of it is like toy companies trying to compete with Santa and not being able to beat him on price points. They're like, we're going to like come up with stuff that Santa can't replicate. And then sent like patents don't apply to Santa, Yeah, right. like corporate structure doesn't apply to Santa. But yeah, so then a lot of these movies are like, well, Santa has like a, a, a board of overseers and they can pull the plug at any time. And you're like, what? Why? would that ever happen yeah on well first of all on what authority could they stop this mystical being and his army of mystical elves from creating toys and delivering them to children like on what grounds would they be like no you actually can't do that we like do do they have kryptonite the equivalent of kryptonite for santa or something that they could Mm -hmm. actually stop like physically stop him like this this guy is like a demigod i thought you were definitely going forever Right, because you were wondering too when he was like, "My brother was a was a doctor." Justin's like, "All right, what famous doctor is his brother?" Like, what? Now we have to like figure out. Like, you were yeah. like in a Marvel Cinematic Universe headspace where you're yeah. like, "Now we're gonna find out who Clyde's brother is." <laughs> He's got to be somebody important. <laughs> you know when Scrooge says that uh, someone should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a sprig of holly through his heart early in Christmas Carol? Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that's how you kill Santa. You boil him in pudding and put a sprig of holly through his heart. <laughs> Like it's like a vampire thing. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, it's like instead of garlic, his weakness is holly. And yeah, um, actually, I've been reading a lot because I'm I'm trying to get more into um, pagan shit. I've been reading a lot about the origins of of Yule, the pagan holiday, and in some traditions, the holly king is finally vanquished by the oak king, which signals the coming of the light. So yeah, I feel like holly is the way that you get rid of uh, Santa Claus. That sounds um, like something yeah. in the Green Knight. Right? Isn't there like an oak king in that where yeah. he's like made out yeah. of wood? Some one of the guys? I believe so. Yeah, that's that sounds right. That uh. would have been a much better movie for us to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a Christmas movie? Is the Green Knight a Christmas movie? It it starts and ends at Christmas. So I think yes. Very I well. think it counts. Um so I think one of the things that's fascinating about Santa is he's inherently commercial, like he's an inherently in, a product of commercialist society. Buy things, consume, have more things, ask for more things. But he's inherently Mm anti-capitalist. And like those two things are like really in tension within him. And the second you try to place him within some sort of like governing body, you just it immediately crumbles because like we're like, okay, well, so Santa is a part of a bureaucracy, right? (laughs) That has to be true because everybody is. Yeah. But it's uh yeah, there's there's it is this movie really presses that point in a way that like uh and uh, to be clear, Clyde is played by Kevin Spacey, yes. uh, a known not per good person, but uh, he. Uh, one of the, the saving graces of Kevin Spacey is how often he plays just rat bastards. Yeah, and true. in this film, he tries to cancel Christmas. Yeah. So, like, 
I never have the problem watching him that I do, like, for instance, like a Louis C.K. production mm-hmm. where, like, you know, you're like, he kind of portrays himself as a lovable schlub. Kevin Spacey's just out there playing a guy who wants to cancel Christmas. And you're like, yep, that's that sounds like just about right. Yeah, he's leaned all the way into it. And um, he I also feel like him and um, and and Giamatti, when they have that standoff uh, about uh, the Superman cape and all that. I actually feel like both of those guys are really going for it. Like they're they're really acting that scene, and you know it is enough that just contributes in a in a weird way to the like tonal imbalance of the film because it's so goofy and there's so much sort of silliness. And then there's that scene where they're they're doing it fully, like they're committed, they're earnest. And uh, there's this yeah, there's a bit uh, toward the end where Kevin Spacey is now he's the good. He's the good Clyde. Yeah. And he says something like, if every child doesn't get his present, then the board will cancel this. The board will get rid of Santa. And he says it so sincerely. And I'm like, oh, my God. How, how were you feeling about your career as you were doing this? Yes. Scene? Yes. Yes. Academy <laughs> Award winner. Uh, actually, how many Academy Award winners? He's were... won two. Right. Yeah. yeah. How many Academy Award winners are in this? Kathy Bates, right? Kathy Bates and Kevin Spacey. And I think that's it. Giamatti never won. He, he was just nominated. Won. He was nominated, though. Yeah. But yeah, I think one of the problems with telling a, a Santa story is always it, it, just the inherent contradiction of you need to have stuff to be happy and to like be rewarded. Also, stuff should just be freely given, yeah. and like there should not be uh, there should not be like really it's like earned, but in the abstract, like there's no monetary value attached yeah. to it. So. And yeah. also the like the lesson is not the stuff you got, but the like feeling of giving it or something like that or like being heard. Um, Except also it's really nice to get. I know, like, right. It's yeah. all... it's, it is about the present. That is the best part. But also don't don't be too into the present. Yeah. No, I uh Huh. I don't know. We're thinking we're thinking a lot about how we're gonna like approach Santa yes. as our child gets older. And uh I don't know. I feel weird lying to my kid. But I'm also like, there is a kind of beauty in that story. Yeah. It doesn't. It does have like a good moral, which is sort of like it's good to be selfless. It's good to take care of people. It's good to help people. Yeah. Uh, it's just also, you know, um, uh, tied to a nightmare surveillance state. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Emily. So I I want to ask you. Just I mean, we've been talking around this as a Christmas movie. Of course, it is a Christmas movie because. The movie is um, oh about Santa Claus. That's right. Um, but is is it a Christmas movie in the sense that it is somehow thematically about the value of Christmas? And we, in the previous Christmas movies we talked about, that was very clear. There were these clear things. But here, the idea I've already hinted the idea might just be everyone deserves a present on Christmas or deserves a second chance. Is that something you is that a feeling you associate with Christmas generally? It's not something I did, but I could see it. I think family togetherness mm-hmm. is sort of the where, way that this movie overlaps with Christmas. And I think one of the things that's really hard to get nailed down when you immediately, when you're doing the Santa story, when it's about Santa and about Rudolph and about whatever is like, then it's a hat on a hat. If you try to ruminate on the meaning of Christmas, because if you're telling a Santa story, the meaning of Christmas is apparent. There's fucking Santa and he's here <laughs> to yeah. save the day and make sure you're good. And again, I think Elf is a useful comparison point because Elf is very much about like how Christmas is a collective 
imaginative thing that we're all sort of willing into existence and that Santa exists because we will him to exist. And like, I don't think that any of the kids who watch Elf really get that from it. It's much more about like the power of belief, but like that layer is there. Uh, this movie doesn't have that weirdly, um, but it's very much uh, telling a story that is like, um, yeah, it's very much telling a story that is about this family that's been broken and needs to come back together. And like Christmas is the method to do that. And one of the family members is Santa and knowing the other work of Dan Fogelman, who is a writer who likes to talk about, uh, like sort of strained families that heal their those bonds uh, i'm guessing that was like the initial idea mm. is what's the family that needs to come together at christmas most santa's family um and then it got buried underneath the everything else that happened but i think that's that's sort of what they're going for it's just not very pronounced like at the end like they're like santa got the greatest gift of all he got his brother back and it's like was that was that what we were doing here all along? <laughs> was that the point of this i mean yeah i think the the moral arc is interesting that santa has to come to learn to have empathy for people who are not as perfect as him he does that's how he's able to accept fred back in then fred has to come to not resent his brother for his brother's sort of moral perfections or whatever. And they do kind of reconcile there. But there's another yeah. point of reconciliation that's, which, that's like not as cleanly handled, which is between Fred and his mom. And yeah. that ends up being totally unresolved because his mom in the last line is basically telling him that he needs a new wardrobe and doing all these negging things that she's been doing to him this whole life. And I guess the lesson is just like, you're never going to change your mom, but you just have to deal with it. Yeah. Weirdly, it's very similar to the Academy Award Best Picture winner, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is like <laughs> yep. the mother and daughter learn to see each other and like have seen every version of each other and have realized that the versions they have are pretty good and they can love each other through that. And then the last scene is her being like, you need to change your hair to the daughter's girlfriend. And we're like, yep, that's just who she is. Right. And that's fine. Like I, I as a message, I I don't think that's awful, but it is very much like so often when we talk about families, we talk about situations in which people are encouraged to accept less because you're meant you're supposed to. And we're never encouraged to ask our families for more. And if we are, we are told to accept tiny droplets of more mm -hmm. when really like you are a person with your own autonomy and your own ability to exist in the world and to know what you need, especially if you're an adult. And it's okay for you to say to your parents, I need this from you or I don't need you in my life. Um, but, you know, that's a step too far for uh, most Hollywood films like uh, Libby and I. My, my wife, with whom I co-write, we were talking about an idea for a Christmas movie, a Christmas comedy. And like we were talking about it through the lens of toxic family dynamics, which is a thing we write about a lot. And then we were sort of we were sort of like, okay, so how if it's, it's a Christmas movie, so you kind of need to heal the dynamics to, in some capacity because that's a token of the genre. And like what we sort of realized is like for a lot of families, like, the thing where you all get together at Christmas and endure each other just long enough is like kind of the meaning of Christmas. So like right, maybe right. Frank Claus has like tapped into that in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I was what I was thinking was that the if you wanted a reconciliation, an earned reconciliation between whatever Mrs. Super Santa Claus, whatever his mom's name is, and uh, and him, Grandma Claus, Grandma Claus. Sorry, Super Santa Claus. <laughs> that doesn't even make any sense. 
Super Santa Claus. <laughs> Super Santa Claus is the uh, 16-bit sequel to the original Santa Claus for the NES. Yes, that's on. right. Super <laughs> Super Santa Claus. I thought that was what happens when Kevin Spacey puts on the cape. Sorry, I was confused. Um, but all it would have taken is like where Fred and um and Santa have their both have to make some um, you know gesture of good faith to have their reconciliation. All you needed is to have Super Santa Claus, that is Grandma Claus, um, do some gesture. Of like, oh, I realized I've been negging you this whole time, and I guess that's kind of sucks. And then I, I would have felt like, okay, that just like ties that end up in in a, in a neat way. So anyway, Lord, Lord was gone because she was dealing with her own Super Santa Claus uh, downstairs. But what we were just talking about was how the maybe the film is leaving us with the message that like you kind of just have to endure your family because mm-hmm. you can't really change them. Yeah, no, I was wondering what Emily what Emily thought about that. Um, so I'm sorry that if I if I already missed her thoughts on that, but <laughs> no, you'll hear no, the episode. I, I think okay, great. I think that a lot of the ways we think about family and togetherness and what you are meant to put up with in the name of family in uh, I was going to say our country, but I think in all of human society mm-hmm. <laughs> are kind of are kind of broken. You know, I think it is a beautiful thing to make room for your family and to forgive and to um, understand that nobody's perfect and that people you love sometimes need space to make mistakes and and be loved in spite of them. But I also think that that idea gets trampled over a lot. And we see some of that, you know, in this movie. These are people who haven't really fixed their relationship, but they act like they have because it's Christmas. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I know. Like the message is like he had an abusive family and now he's going to spend more time with them. Like that, that is a bummer. But I think, but I think though, like, you know, your family is made out of discreet relationships and yet we all are pulled together at certain times of year. And like, sometimes, yes, like, you know, I'm hoping that Fred has a boundary with his mom and he doesn't see, you know, and it, it has gone from, he doesn't see his mom in 200 years to like every now and again, yeah. he sees his mom. Yeah. She makes a comment about his shirt. It's annoying. He can deal with it. But like now he has a new relationship with Nick. Yeah. It's kind of, like yeah. that's that's kind of the most you can hope for maybe in yeah. a lot of families. Yeah, it's, it's, it's still positive. It's just realistic. Yeah. 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 And I think like, I don't know. I have a really like radical understanding of family and what family should be because I've read a lot of like, I've dealt with my own family estrangement issues. I've talked to a lot of people who are so estranged from their families. I have this like weird thing where I'm adopted. So I got like a bonus family that I'm figuring out how to navigate that. Uh, and I, I sound, say that like it's a joke, but it's actually very beautiful and profound and I'm mm-hmm. having a wonderful time with it. But I also have read a lot of stuff about family abolition, which is basically like this idea that just because you're born to people doesn't mean they should necessarily be your parents, which like frightens me as a parent, but also like as a person yeah. who was adopted and all of that, like I, uh, by, and uh, like I un- sort of get the underpinning ideas of it. And it's drawn, a lot of it's drawn from like queer theory. And it's just like, if we think about the world as like being full of toxic and traumatic events, like that are driven often within the family, the first paragraph of, of, uh, Bessel van der Kolk's, um, the body keeps the score, which is like this, this book that everybody read in the last several years, basically outlines all of these traumatic events that can happen and also outlines how most of them happen within the home. And so if we're saying that it's something like, one in four women are sexually abused before they're. This is the Fred Claus episode, everybody. <laughs> one, in f- 
one in four women are sexually abused before they turn 18. One in four, one in five boys are sexually abused before they turn 18. And a lot of that's happening with the trusted authority figures, right. usually people in your own family. Mm. Then there's something very broken in the family, like mm. the f- conception we have of family that need we need to be liberated from. And yet the second you start thinking, the second I start thinking about that, and I'm someone who's done a lot of thinking about this, who believes that people should have autonomy, it freaks me the fuck out. Because if we don't negotiate, if we don't like structure our society around families, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. And like, yeah, this is the thing that goes back to the dawn of humanity. <laughs> so like, Well, I mean, I think I think part of what the radical, I mean, what you can take the radical view in two, two different ways. One way to take the radical view is that it is a genuine ge- generally trying to impose a an alternative vision on and 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 it would do it totally welcome that vision another way though is it's a way of prompting people to be better because within the family unit i mean these problems would be solved if people just didn't sexually assault their kids or whatever it is you know whatever's yeah. happening or sexually assault their siblings and it's and it's like but maybe they feel like they can because they feel like there's no genuine alternative cuz like what are you going to do you can't create a new family like you're beholden to me in some sense but maybe if there's like a threat of a genuine alternative even though if very few people end up taking that alternative um people maybe would be I don't know, maybe, you know, if they're not going to be moral for the right reasons, maybe they'll be moral from the, th- mm. the threat of actually losing their family. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, I mean, another thing I thought about while watching Fred Claus. No, actually, I thought of, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, is why fundamentalist religions are so frightened by queerness. Um, and I increasingly think it's because they interpret queerness as a, as a religious threat as like a competing religion that is Mm -hmm. entering their space. Obviously as a queer person, who's also a a Christian and also a pagan, I know that none of those like things contradict each other. I can be all of those things at once. But if you're in a space that is very much like, this is the way that the world is ordered and this is the structure the world has to live by. The second you have an entire like theory of the world that is like actually you can kind of determine your own life you can kind of determine who you are who you love you know what what kind of life you live what is most important is that you uh obtain the consent and the your uh the the permission of others and like that you are able to set boundaries and they are able to set boundaries and you are able to be safe and in the same space together is a direct contradiction of a lot of what fundamentalist religion is built atop. Yeah. So like they see this and they perceive it as a religious threat in like the way that like we've had religious wars. And like, I don't know if that's true, but it's like a thing I've sort of been thinking around recently because like, it's so weird to me, the degree to which people who are fundamentalist Christians in the United States are interpreting queerness as like, children being indoctrinated and like they're using religious language around it in a way that doesn't vibe with my understanding of queerness but does vibe with their understanding of like a competing threatening religion that's trying to like wipe them out of existence yeah i mean i haven't thought about this nearly as much as you emily but if i somebody stuck a gun to my head and said what would the answer to that be i had the hunt my hunch would be it was something like because there's no i sorry just to preface this there there you're totally right that there's no like scriptural reason why the values that are espoused in queer communities would be opposed to the, you know, what's in the Bible or anything like that. But I think what it is, is that a lot of people are driven to religion as a way of holding on to something like it's, it's just a way of reifying conservatism that comes independently of the religion. And so it's like a way to the religion because 
why why does it work that way? Because the religion is this kind of tradition, and the tradition can then be used to justify anything you want. And they they happen to be you know it's a really powerful way to to justify keeping things the way they are. And so then you have a bunch of people who want to keep things the way they are. Of course, any kind of queer theory, any queer radical vision of the world is is going to clearly be opposed to that. And um, and so then they're going to use the tool that they have used to hold on to their way of life, which is religion, and they're just going to use that as a as a kind of smokescreen to bash their all you know this this what they see as a threatening alternative. Anyway, take that Red religion. Claws. We're coming for you. <laughs> Uh, okay, Emily. So um, I think I think we've said everything that needs to be said about Fred Claus. It's a great movie. I would give it four out of five stars. Um, Laura, what's your vote on how many stars? Because we're coming to you, Emily. Five uh, zero to five stars. Oh, I'm, go- I'm going. We never do a star system. I'm you going, change this thing every every. I'm time. going three stars. Legitimately, three stars for Fred Claus. Yeah, I, I was totally fine with it. I also give it a three. Also fine. The lack of. I had- I had some, I had, I got some feelings in some of the scenes. Laura was stirred. Emily, <laughs> zero to five. What do you think? I was I, I was gonna go two, and then I remembered that Elizabeth Banks had an amazing elf costume yeah. that mm. I wish I could wear and mm. pull off. So I'm going two and a half. Going two point five. I love you it. You know what? No, I'm staying at two. I'm actually gonna go up from a one point five to two because I <laughs> okay. didn't like this movie. But there was a really great elf costume, and it's really great. And you know what? We made it an hour and a half we on did David it. Dobkin's 2007 Fred Claus. So. Emily, thank you so much for being here. And tell the folks at home if there's anything you want to promote. Uh, you know, the show is Yellow Jackets. It's about bees. And yeah, please watch the show Yellow Jackets. It's about bees. I didn't work on either of the first two seasons, uh, both of which were nominated for Emmys. And uh, if season three is not, you'll know why. <laughs> um, so but, much pressure. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but uh, no, I, I really love it. It was one of my favorite shows before I started working there. And now it's uh, I'm so jazzed and so happy to be there it's such a great great team i'm a part of um also you can find me on most platforms uh at emily st jams um i uh uh, am on most social media platforms letterboxd and and blue sky tend to be where i hang out the most um and uh what else what newsletter newsletter oh you can you can read my newsletter at episodes.ghost.io which is kind of about tv and film and things like that and you can listen to my podcast podcast like it's 1992 which i co-host with Phil Iskov, uh, Justin and Laura were on our episode about Mighty Ducks, which is really just me talking about how much I want Marguerite Moreau's uh, uh, outfit uh, mm-hmm. wardrobe from that film. Mm-hmm. I feel really honored to have been on the Mighty Ducks episode because I've been listening to a lot of the show and I can't tell you how many times you guys know more than me, but you guys like, yep, this opened next to the Mighty Ducks. And I was like, man, the Mighty Ducks was just like kicking around for a while. So that is a joke that I pressured Phil into making. When we first started recording, we did like three seemingly unrelated movies that Mighty Ducks was up against. And so it just always came up when he was listing the number of movies. Oh, so he just makes this up? So now like every movie I make him say, and the Mighty Ducks. Oh, okay. (laughs) I thought, I was like, wait, it seems like the Mighty Ducks is, is opening against everything. So that's not true. That's just some, he's just throwing that in there. Yeah, it's 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 me being cruel to him. Um, <laughs> uh, thank, but, but thank then you we get to be the Mighty Ducks always. episode. Well, That's yes, cool. I, anyway, yes. Anyway, thank you, Emily. And we, we were so it was such a pleasure to have you. Always, you your, the Christmas slot is yours. It was Fred Claus this year. I hope everyone goes and sees it. And next year it will be what was the what are we Jack doing? Frost? Jack Frost. We right. talked about Jack Frost. I don't know if I actually can bring us to do that. Maybe next year we'll have to do like. Can we do all three Grinches? 
Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's do, do it. Let's do yeah. a, th- a triplets. That's just it's great when we've made I our audience watch three movies. Revisited the the Jim Carrey one in a, in oh, since maybe the year two thousand. It's a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't wait for that. Uh, we are at CalsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at CalsPod.com. And in two weeks, we are... Well, I, yeah, I'm not going to say the full schedule now, but in two weeks, we are doing Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift with Matt Stroll and Nick Riggle. We, I've already recorded that episode. It was super fun. I hope people listen to it. There's a lot of this, Emily. You'll know this. Two, five, six, four, three, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> <laughs> right. and and lauren are just like can you say that again that was way too fast and then everyone's <laughs> writing it down and trying to compare notes and anyway so yeah we're doing a lot of that and it's uh it's a fun episode about art those are two philosophers of art so we get real serious about art and the nature of art and aesthetics and it's fun so we'll see sure. you guys there thanks bye bye, bye humbug, that's too strong it is my favorite.